Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Boche, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you here today. Thank you so much, Beth. It's thrilling to be here. So let's get started right away. I first, though, Lillian, will you share a little bit about your background and then share a little bit about what you're doing right now? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Lillian Ardell and was not always a doctor of the PhD kind. I think it's important to note that I started my career as a rank and file dual language teacher in the South Bronx, New York City. Woo woo. I found my way into a building that was wall-to-wall dual language, largely taught second grade and fourth grade, and I got my hands on curriculum design and development, always thinking of the intersections between language and instruction. So that was really always where my sweet spot was. I was a great reading teacher. I was an aspiring writing teacher. I was a fledgling science teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Loved social studies. And I always found ways to integrate the content into the literacy. And I think that that is still where I hold today, those intersections, which I think any ESL teacher can appreciate. You're bringing in language into the content. From there, I applied to doctoral programs, did not get in the first time. I want it to be known. I had to go back, do a little bit more work. And then the second time I applied, I got into New York University, Steinhardt School of Education. And there I built out my research interests. And so again, language and pedagogy. And then I added a third bullet point, which was beliefs and attitudes around language and around the language learners themselves. So I was asking questions like, How does a teacher come to make decisions around a multilingual learner in the classroom? And what are the sort of understandings of theory and of practice that inform their decisions? And then what do I see them actually do in the classroom? So it was a lot of qualitative 
observational work, which has landed me and ushered me into my current role as a bilingual coach. I have a business, Language Matters, and I partner with schools and with districts and with think tanks to look at those intersections of language ideologies, teacher instructional decisions, curriculum, and how can we make things more impactful and equitable for our English learners. So that's what I do today. Wow, I love it. Such important work. I just, I would, I, I want to have a whole nother podcast on just going more in depth of what you found in your research. So you're going to come back. All right, Lillian, I want to hear more about that. Happy to do it. We will have her back on because I want to hear a lot more about <laughs> finding. Teaser, and that is, teaser. Yeah, that's a teaser, but that is such, that's really important work. I love, I love those intersections of those three pieces. Really powerful. All right. So today though, we are going to be talking about scaffolds and specifically linguistic scaffolds. So why don't you dive into that topic and share just a little bit about what are linguistic scaffolds, what are not, what do we, what does that mean when we talk about linguistic scaffolds? Great question. So I know that a lot of the audience are ESL teachers. And so your default is to think about language Mm -hmm. at the level of instruction. I'm your people. I'm always that way. And I also know that the purview of an ESL teacher is to support non-language specialized teachers that do not have language as top of mind. And so that type of professional will think of a scaffold as, okay, that gradual release model, grouping is a scaffold. Maybe they'll throw some vocabulary up there or have the understanding of a sentence stem. But it really is rather limited because they want to always hang on to those sentence stems. And they don't know when the appropriate time is to remove that scaffold. Mm. So let me dial back and say, not all scaffolds are linguistic. Yeah. And here are sort of the criteria that I like to go through for it to count as a linguistic scaffold. The scaffold in some way has to meaningfully move a learner along the proficiency spectrum. Mm. That's the first thing. Super helpful. Yeah. Second thing, you have to see that students are engaging in more output, verbal output, written output that you're hearing or learning more from the student on the basis of using that scaffold. So that's where like conversation sticks to help them be able to participate in the conversation is a really powerful linguistic scaffold. How come? Because you're hearing from your students. Yes. Right? Yep. A third thing I would say is that in some ways it has to have linguistic equity as the backbone, as the foundation. So when I talk about linguistic equity, I say, who's taking the airtime up in the room? Are you involving meaningfully your more emerging or newcomer students? Which also goes back to that idea of attitudes about the learners themselves. If a teacher is sitting there thinking they don't have the language, how can they possibly communicate or participate in this classroom? then a linguistic scaffold is a shorthand way to start to involve a learner to feel like they belong there and they have rights to the airtime. I'll say that again. That student belongs in the classroom talk and they also have rights to the airtime. And going back, you know, to what you were doing your research on and having and really hitting on that point, and I've talked about that many times here in this podcast, of just that assets-based approach is so, so necessary before we even begin to think about the work we're going to be doing with our students. It's really about looking at us as a teacher 
and saying, you know, how do I see these students and what, and the gifts they're bringing in my classroom? Or am I seeing it? Like you say, oh, well, they don't have the language, like they can't participate. They can't do these things, you know, and we're already just disregarding them. So that, I love that. Yeah. I think what's nice about the linguistic scaffold is you can start to do the practice and almost reverse engineer the negative Mm -hmm. attitude into Mm -hmm. an asset one, because once you start to see that learners do have things to say and that they blow you away and surprise you, it will be harder to hang on to the story that they don't know, or they can't participate because they just proved you wrong. (laughs) Yes. That's how I think all of us have that story, that student we can think of where we think, you know, that time that maybe we thought they didn't have it in them and they just shock us and we're like, okay, you know, this is one of the most rewarding things about teaching, in my opinion. Invite yourself to be blown away. You yeah, know? absolutely. I love that. I love that. So we're going to get into it, something else in a second, but why don't you share maybe just, I know you said like the conversation sticks is a great scaffold. Do you have, you know, maybe two or three other just quick suggestions you can give that you don't have to go in depth of what they are, but just maybe to spark some ideas of our, for our listeners. Yeah. So I would think that an ESL teacher is hip to a language objective. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can speak a little bit about the role of language objectives and uh-huh. linguistic scaffolds. Uh-huh. So here's a bad one. Let me start with a bad one and then we'll move into a Great. good one. Okay. The language objective would be something like, I will use linguistic scaffolds in my math talk group today. Yeah. Super vague, very generic. Uh, um, A a colleague that looks at that lesson plan isn't going to understand anything more about it. So we want to move away from vague and we want to get really specific. Here would be a better one. The students will explain orally and in writing. So that might be one, the the algorithm for that math problem. Mm -hmm. The students will use the language of explaining such as I found it by, or mm. my data showed me this. So then you're actually inserting the sound bite right there yeah. orally. Here's another one. My emerging students will explain. So now you've labeled the actual mm. student that you're going to be focusing on for that one. Mm-hmm. My emerging students will explain using the following two vocabulary words, mm. algorithm and the preposition by. Okay. So what I like about those is it's setting you up for drilling into the language function, which Mm -hmm. I could, we could have a whole conversation about language functions, you know, (laughs) and how they're done poorly, how they're done moderately and how you can really thrive in a language function space. Yeah. You're then offering the exact language that you could model. Cause I I just want to point out to an ESL teacher, you are giving free professional development to your colleagues every time you're in their classroom. Mm -hmm. And I want you to sit in that power and recognize that you're doing a few things. Not only are you service providers to your English learners, you're also modeling good language teaching practices for a colleague that if they're dialed in enough, they're actually benefiting. So if they can see on the lesson plan, what a successful language objective looks like and observe how you're doing that with a small group of students, you have just built greater capacity Through linguistic scaffold. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. So a few quickly more, because I do want to actually answer your question. I'm aware when I don't answer questions. (laughs) No, this is fascinating. I love it. I like to always be expanding the linguistic repertoire of myself and of my learners. And so doing a lot of synonym work where they start at maybe the tier one word and then start to build out word walls of synonyms that they could plop into and start to elevate from that initial tier one. 
So here's an example. Today, I feel blank, right? So the using the sort of closed passage verbally. Yeah. Today, I feel, mm, a student says, today, I feel funny. Today, I feel strange. Today, I feel sad. And so from any of those emotion words, starting to build out two or three additional synonyms that they could put in place of there. Yeah. And then training their noticing apparatus, mm -hmm. which our brains are good at doing, for plucking those words that they were introduced to from any texts, any movies, anything that you might see throughout the week. Hey, 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 we just saw that word melancholy, but we already mm -hmm. learned that at the top of the week because my friend, instead of sad, said, I feel melancholy. So I talk about sprinkling in metalinguistic moments across the instructional day, hat tip to Dr. Lily Wong Fillmore, because she inspired me to think of it that way. Any moments where you can sort of have them start to notice language yes. or intentionally, that starts to grow their repertoires. You'll start to see that in their output. Again, back to the top of what makes a scaffold linguistic, they're starting to expand their language stores and blow you away. Oh, melancolica. So they have that in Spanish mm -hmm. also and yep. starting to make those connections as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that. And I, I actually just shared something recently on the podcast, hitting to that same point of, you know, as teachers, I think sometimes we have the weight of us that we think we need to be responsible for holding the key to unlock all language and vocabulary. And really it's, it's about creating these students who are like word detectives that they're starting to make these connections that they're exactly that they see the word melancholy ah, in Espanol, esta melancolia, and then they're starting to naturally make connections because of the way that we're exposing them in those small moments, you know, and not maybe the whole group, they're not all ready for that, but maybe two or three are like, they got that. And then they remember, oh, this is on the word wall. I'm going to use this in, in my writing now. And, you know, and then maybe other kids in the group pick up with some other words that you're just using in conversation. And I think that's kind of the weight we need to take off of us as, as teachers is we are not the sole, you know, responsible people of the key to unlock all language for these students. It's really just creating one, a, an atmosphere where they feel excited to learn the language. They feel safe. They feel welcome. And there's just that excitement to explore language, all languages, bringing in their native language, bringing in their, you know, as a teacher, just getting excited about learning some words from our students' native languages as well really helps create that environment where language learning is an exciting thing. Um, so I love I love that point that you made. Really bridging it and, and helping them to have those strategies where they remember, oh, on the word wall, I remember there's some synonyms that I can use, you know, so I can kind of strengthen this and not use the word sad again. Like, let me see what other word I can use. And and kids really catch on with it. That's what the, what's so exciting is exactly that. They're going to blow you away when you start to just give them those little moments. What was it? Meta-linguistic moments? Meta-language moments yes. where they're noticing yeah. and they're thinking and wondering. And I want to say something a little subversive right now. I don't like the word graveyard. I think that's trash. Why would we ever say, don't use words that you already know? Right. Right. I think that that can incite some real anxiety from a student that just <laughs> arrives all the way back with now. skulls and dead, dead, uh, these words are dead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, no, no. If you're creating an, a culture where you're aspiring to grow the mm -hmm. language, then no words exist in a graveyard. You're yeah. just amplifying. Maybe it should be like a word balloon. I don't know, like yeah. a hot air balloon of, of words where you're just from that tier one word, right? 
there are so many others that we have access to. So let's let's do away with the the, the, the also what a sad metaphor, a graveyard. <laughs> so let's okay, let's move on to you know something that I see happen a lot, and I was guilty of this as well. You know, there's just this dance that happens when you are supporting multilingual learners and you're providing scaffolds. And I loved your point of really the purpose is to continue to move them on the proficiency levels. You want to move them forward of their language development. And so I think it's really important to know when are we over scaffolding Mm -hmm. and when we need to start to remove some scaffolds. You know, our whole purpose is to help our students become responsible for their own learning, for their own, helping them take that responsibility, become independent. We don't want them to rely for scaffolds yeah. and and get expected to have that. We want to really give them what they need, but then also yeah. have a good idea of when it's time to remove it and maybe add in a new scaffold that's for a higher proficiency level because they're ready for it and they're ready for the higher expectation. Um, mm-hmm. So why don't you share more about that of, you know, when, what does it look like? When do you, do you have any, you know, cues that you've seen where, you know what, okay, it's time to remove this scaffold. This is, we're over scaffolding right now. This isn't beneficial to our students. Yeah, this is an easy one. When their responses and their output sound formulaic. When it sounds formulaic and they're just parroting and you get this, the felt sense that they don't own the language yet. And if it's happening for too long and it doesn't feel like there's an authenticity to their responses, whether it's orally or in writing. I think oftentimes it actually happens for writing mm-hmm. that the scaffolds continue to stick around. Then invite the revision process and say, we're going to jazz this up and we're going to make it a little bit more. Start to throw in some translanguaging or some home language, heritage language words in there so that it starts to sound more like the voice of the child. So that would be one way. I remember going into like seeing sort of kindergarten or first grade, like the the displayed bulletin board outside and it's all identical. Every single student's responses were exactly the same. And it's like, how boring and how deeply uninterested. And I know those kids weren't enjoying the process because you see when a child's creativity comes alive and jumps off the page. I mean, shoot, my Instagram and TikTok is filled with interesting responses of students. Mm-hmm. We know that they're creative. We don't want them to go to school to have their creativity die. Yes. You know? yeah. I can't think of anything more deficit. Yeah. So I would say that. And then also, sometimes it's just, it feels like a risk on the part of the teacher to just remove it and see what happens. See what they're capable of doing on their own. You might have to white knuckle through that experience, but trust your students. I think part of it is finding a way to go back to trusting them because that's real assessment. And that's when you know you can really see along the proficiency spectrum. Now, don't do that on a day where the kid comes in like super hot or like dysregulated. I mean, think of like (laughs) sort of like an emotionally stable time to take it away. But the reality is that they're not going to have scaffolds on the high stakes assessments either. So you're not doing them any great favors by having them continue to stick around for too long. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a there's a time reality and also a contextual reality that they want to feel that confidence. Like when they're showing you signs of confidence, that would be a third point when they're showing that they're ready and you can offer it to them. Do you think you need this anymore? Let the student tell you. No, 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 maestra. I'm I'm good right now. I think I can do it on my own. Yeah. And that also requires sort of instructional scaffolding to give 
different enough tasks that they've done it enough times where you can really see that's that interim assessment role right there. What are they made of? I think too, just making those opportunities, like you're saying, having that discussion or putting it back on them and say, you know, a lot of times I give you a word bank when you're writing. Can you come up with three or four words that you would put in the word bank, you know, and maybe helping it. spell them, or maybe if that, that kind of catches them up that they're just feeling, you know, that anxiety over spelling the words correctly or whatever, but having, putting that on them and continuing to kind of place that on them and say, Hey, why don't you come up with the word bank words? Or, you know, what sentence stem should I give to this student? And really just continuing to have them reflect on that and, and their learning in that way too, I think um, helps to kind of remove that scaffold from them, depending on you for that. So I love that. Okay. So Lillian, let's move into something that, you know, I, I actually love this topic as well, because I've just in different research I've done, I've seen the power behind Oracy and I, but there's not a lot of talk that's happening around this role in bilingual and ELL education in classrooms. So let's hit on that for a second. Tell me about, you know, the role of Oracy and, and just what that means and how that impacts teaching. Oh my gosh. So metalinguistic moments I love. If there were really a silver bullet, my one straight up answer for how are we going to forever change academic outcomes for our English language learners, the answer is more oracy in the classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. More oracy. So O-R-A-C-Y, just want to spell it out so that the listener can think about what it looks like. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like literacy, right? Right. So (laughs) if literacy is the formal instruction of reading and writing in academic and classrooms, then oracy is the formal instruction and development of oral language skills in academic settings. So oracy is anchored in this, if I can think it, if I can say it, then I can write it sort of a model. You want to have there be a lot of rich classroom dialogue and conversations for the students to participate and start to build that academic register orally first and foremost. And for some students, it will be longer on that path than others, right? Mm. Before you start to move into the the writing pieces too much or to do it as an accompaniment to the writing piece. One of the greatest hacks that I feel like with oracy is this notion of an oral rehearsal for my kiddos, Mm -hmm. um, where maybe they would have a stuffy in the classroom, or they would like pretend to hold a microphone to their hands. Mm. And they would sort of whisper responses just for themselves to start to practice what the response would sound like. I would do that as a step before my turn and talk, actually, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would have them vocalize just for themselves as a first pass. That's oracy. Then talk to a partner to start to to have that listening and that exchange thing. That's the second pass. And then the third one would be sharing it out to the entire group. All of that is anchored in a rich oracy classroom. Yeah. I I want to add, if any of you are biliteracy fans in the Mm -hmm. audience and you have followed the work of Kathy Escamilla and Sandra Budolovsky and the literacy from the squared paradigm, Mm -hmm. oracy is one of the cornerstones of their framework. Oracy happens in a lot of the home countries that our students are coming from. So that's already happening and that the parents might actually know from that as well. And so, yeah, I just think that all of the language study and building out those different language function, first and foremost, happens in an oral language exchange. I hope that's clear. Yeah, no, I mean, 
that really sums up many, many different moments of research that I've done of just seeing the power. And personally, I mean, I took 10 years of Spanish in the States, came and moved abroad, and I couldn't speak a word, you know, because I realized my listening comprehension is horrible. I don't know at all what this person just said. And I have a minor in Spanish, like what, there's something wrong here because I'm trying to conjugate verbs and do all these things. And I'm like, but I don't have the oracy that I needed. And once I started really focusing on it, I'd start to, you know, watch things in Spanish. And as soon as I realized like, wow, I just understood that without translating and really started to develop that ear and Mm -hmm. and worked on just the oral, you know, activities and, and things like that then it started to really increase rapidly. And I I share that a lot here of like the power behind focusing on that listening domain, really strengthening the listening and speaking before we get to reading and writing, because those directly will impact how they do with reading and writing. And if we move there too fast, we're missing out on so many opportunities when they can really enjoy the language process by, you know, really focusing on those, those first two domains. And I think that there's things to be said around too quickly paced classrooms, absolutely too too quickly paced curricula where there's real felt pressure to move through things and to check off the content boxes. That is such a threat to an oracy focused classroom. And I want to, I want to name that if you're feeling like, are you going to come in and tell my administrator that I'm behind Mm -hmm. behind the most sacrificial word? No, we want to dial down because then your rate of speech yeah, comprehensible input can be a little bit more measured processing time, which by the way, is good for any neurodivergent yeah. student. Exactly. And if you can do slightly less in terms of the amount of content mm-hmm. and give way to the richness of oracy, yeah. you will, your students will shine. I, yeah. Guarantee. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Who's going to take up that challenge? Come on. We, we believe it will happen. So. so now, now I can talk with you about the yeah. IRE if you'd like. Yeah, to let's talk, talk about, about the IRE. What? Tell us what that means. What? How this impacts teaching? All those good things. So, in your oracy-rich classroom that we've now established, is a fundamental of good practice with our English language learners and our emergent bilinguals. So the IRE stands for initiate, respond, and evaluate, and it's what sounds like a ping pong between the teacher and a single learner type of a talk structure. So I'll say that again, a talk structure. Our classrooms default talk structures are the ping pong model, okay? Mm -hmm. However, in natural flowing conversations between people, there's more fluidity and there's more, okay, can you follow up on what you're telling me? Or I didn't quite get that. Or if there's three people in a conversation, I mean, a classroom is, 20 to 30 humans all vying for talk time. So if you want to move away from an IRE, which effectively is like a verbal quiz is essentially what it is. The teacher knows the answer. A student is being asked something and the teacher is evaluating the, the, the legitimacy or the strength of that response of the student in a dialogic conversation the teacher talk time is dialed down mm-hmm. and the learner responses and engagement is dialed way up. So one of the most surefire ways to get into a dialogic classroom model is putting a press on student output. Mm-hmm. And that is another linguistic scaffold in the full conversation of linguistic scaffolds. Yeah. So putting a press might be 
the teacher says, mm, what are one of the branches of government? So that's the initiate. Mm-hmm. Javier says, mm, excab- they're sort of like fishing around for executive. And the teacher mm-hmm. says, I know you've got it. Take your time. Or the teacher might say, do you want to look over at the word wall to remember? So any of these nudges or these mm. opportunities for them to give the response. Oh, yeah, it's over there. Ex- exec- Let class, let's say it together. Executive. Ah. And then instead of moving on to another kiddo, cool, Javier, what do you remember about the executive branch? Mm-hmm. And giving the kid even another opportunity to say more or to expand their response about executive, the kid might clam up and say, I don't know. Okay. Let's see if we can circle back to you in a little bit and we'll hear from another pal, right? So it's this whole notion that starting from a moment that you know that your kids know, trying for you, you're sort of nudging or ushering mm-hmm. an extent, an extension of their response. The most masterful teachers are able to put the facilitator role onto the students mm-hmm. where the teacher asks one central prompt. And the kids are able to flow through an academic conversation amongst themselves mm. with some scaffolds like a vocabulary list or some conversation starters around it, where for five minutes, you've heard the teacher only sort of ask nudging types of questions, yeah. but they're not the main star of that conversation. So that's called putting a press on student output. I actually, if you do find your way to my website, I have yeah. a lot of resources around this. I also do a full workshop on linguistic scaffolds, where we go into depth, we look at teacher transcripts, masterful teacher transcripts, where they're showing how they in their talk moves do those scaffolds. And at that point, a lot of teachers, when they see examples of what that looks like, and they put it right into their classroom, they come back to me, they're like, Lillian, I had no idea students knew so much, and that their language is so expansive. I'm like, because you gave them a chance, right? And it wasn't just the you show up there. Yes. You gave it over to them and they're they're always they like up. blown away. They they share it with the parents. It's it it can start to really change the culture and climate of a classroom from a mm. pobecito deficit mentality. Yes. Yes. That is beautiful. And I think too the power behind just your students knowing the expectation that you're not going to just move on or you know like oh you don't know it okay well I'll ask somebody else and really kind of just they know okay, the teacher's going to push me They They have high expectations and that's what our students want. And that's where they rise up to them. I mean, you'll see that over and over again, if we create that space in that environment where they, they know that. What could be more empowerment than that? Exactly. That's, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> I mm-hmm. love that. Well, we are running out of time, but why don't you share where can people find more about the work you're doing? If they're interested in the linguistic course, all those types of things, please share. Yeah. Yeah. So the website, it's really easy. Languagematters.org. My Instagram handle at language matters. I'm pretty hip on LinkedIn as well. I know teachers aren't really much in LinkedIn, but I put a lot of stuff out there. And also Leanne Ardell at languagematters.org is the email. Um, a lot of the stuff is on the website, so you can poke around and see the offerings. Another thing that I wanted to promote mm-hmm. is I have a workshop on reading comprehension that's growing in a lot of popularity. I'm getting a lot of more bookings for that one. Mm-hmm. And that is that metalinguistic moments I was talking about. Yeah. I bring I bring that to bear on a close reading set of strategies and tools. We dig into figurative language. We dig into paraphrasing, which believe it or not, is one of the hardest linguistic tasks 
Mm. we can ask of a student is to summarize a passage in their own words. So I have a protocol that I walk teachers through can offer it in English and in Spanish. So the close reading with juicy sentences is one that's really exciting. And then check out the stuff I'm writing about the monolingual bias and disrupting the monolingual bias. I think that's a conversation we might have for a different yeah. episode. I've got a book coming out with that title. Oh, so very awesome. Wow. So exciting. I'm super busy. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. You're doing good work. So I'm glad you're getting out there in the world. So yeah. we'll put those links in the show notes as well. So people can just click down and find yeah. out more of what you're doing. And Thank you so much. This was extremely helpful and we're going to have you back again. Let me also just close by giving immense gratitude to all of the rank and file teachers that are out there doing this work every day. Yeah. I see you. I know how valued your contributions are. Your students, some of them, you might be the only advocate they have in that classroom. So don't quit on the on the industry. There's a lot of teacher burnout right now and I'm really really concerned for y'all's welfare. Even if you wanted to book a call with me to just vent about how people don't understand you, I am here to sit and listen and to say that I know, and I've been there and um, our country simply wouldn't function without you. So thank you for all the work you're doing. Yes. We are here to support however we can. Thanks so much, Lillian. Have a great day and we hope to see you again on the podcast soon. Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.